0: All right, so let's uh, unpack this. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, and one of the things that we'll, we'll dig into as we go through this series, I'm not going to do a, a lot of background this morning on Luke, uh, who wrote the book of Acts, and, um, but one thing you do need to know is Acts and the Gospel of Luke are uh, go hand in hand. Um, they used to be, in, in many Bibles, they were put together as one book. In the Hebrew Bible... Uh, they were done that way, uh, the Christian Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so you would have Luke and Acts as kind of chapter one, chapter two. Luke is the gospel. It tells all the works of Jesus. And as we'll see later on, Acts picks up the story where it leaves in the book, the book of uh, Luke. So they're companion pieces written by the same man. So we're going to be looking at both this morning as we dig into this story. But here's where I want to begin. Most of you guys are familiar with the book of Acts. You know how it starts. It starts in the upper room where these 120 disciples had gathered after the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They're in that upper room because Jesus told them to go there. And what I want us to do is kind of get our, our heads around what's going on in that room. Uh, what's the atmosphere like? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And, and uh, there's a, if you've ever been to Israel, um, And gone on a tour, they will take you to the upper room. I've been there. I have no suspicion whatsoever that that's the upper room, any more than most of the sites in Israel are what they say they are, um, except the Sea of Galilee. Um, That one I'm pretty sure about. Uh, But they take you to this room, and it's called the upper room, and it's a fairly ornate room, but I don't think that's really the place where they met. We do know it was a room where. 120 men and women, all followers of Jesus Christ came together and met. And I think the atmosphere was a mixture of all kinds of feelings and emotions. Why? Because Jesus had died, then he appeared, risen from the dead, and then he left them again. And he had told them, as we'll see in just a second, go there and wait. Anybody in this room like to wait? No, nobody likes to wait. Even those 120 disciples didn't like to wait. But they're in this room, and it's an atmosphere of anticipation. But I think there's far more than that, as we'll see. So I want to start with go backwards in time and let's go back to the death of Jesus because all of this is important to set up where we're going in the book of Acts. So we know in the gospel of Luke, he tells us by this time, it was about noon, this is at the death of Jesus, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock, the light from the sun was gone, suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary, the temple was torn down the middle, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands and with those words he breathed his last. This is on the cross, the last minutes of Jesus' life. And then it tells us, When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. So you have here, and all of us are familiar with the story, right? We've, we know about the crucifixion. We know what happened. But this kind of brings us into the atmosphere of what was taking place and the feelings of those who had stood by and watched not only their friend, but their rabbi, their teacher, and their Messiah, who they thought to be their Messiah, die. And not just die, but die a very gruesome death death. At the hands of the Romans. And so it says, they stood there at a distance watching. What are they watching? Well, they're watching this man who they love be taken down from the cross. The scriptures tell us that he was unrecognizable at that point. He had been beaten so badly. He had gone through so much torture, so much pain that you couldn't even recognize him. He was almost inhuman in appearance. So they take him down and they watch as his body is removed from there and he's dead. Now, think about that. Think about what goes through their minds as they stand there watching their Messiah, their Savior, their hope for the future, not only their future, but of Israel dead. He's gone. All their hope vanished. They were sad. Some were probably angry. The scriptures don't tell us, but they're human, right? They're disappointed. They're probably a little bit chapped at Jesus, but you said you were the Savior. You said you were the Messiah. You said you had come to establish your kingdom, and now you're dead. So either you were a liar or this whole thing's a sham. What's going on? But all kinds of feelings are rushing through them, and then three days are going to pass, and we know that during those three days, God was busy, and God's going to do something great, which brings us to the resurrection, another event that we're very familiar with. And one of my hopes as we go through this series is that you will come at this with new eyes, with a new perspective, and you will take all your preconceived notions and put them aside and really try to figure out what's going on in the book of Acts. And here's the real question. Why is it not going on today? Why are the events that we see in Acts not happening today here in Fort Worth, Texas? So the resurrection, very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. Why were they going to the tomb? Were they looking for a resurrected Lord? No, because they're taking spices to anoint a dead body. So what are their expectations headed to the tomb? Body hoping that the guards will probably unroll the stone that blocks the opening so they can anoint the body that they didn't get to anoint three days earlier because it was the eve of the sabbath. They found that stone rolled away so they went in but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground then the men asked why are you looking among the dead for someone who's, who is alive? One of the greatest questions in Scripture. Why are you here, followers of Jesus, looking for a dead man because he's alive? Now, you and I can read that and go, well, gosh, that's a little sarcastic, a little rough, a little harsh. But see, Jesus had told them over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again. But they didn't expect it. They didn't believe it. So they say, why are you here? Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. He told you. Then they remembered that he had said this so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So here come these women, and they're all excited. They're just, just <laughs> bubbling over with enthusiasm because they just got news from two angels that Jesus is alive. They tell it to the 11, and what, what's their response? You're crazy. What have you been smoking? What, what's wrong with you? You're women. You're emotional. You've lost your senses. But Peter, because Peter's the impulsive one, he leaves, jumps up, runs to the tomb to take a look. He looks in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Once again, you don't have a thrill of excitement. You don't have him going, it happened. Just like he said, he's wondering what happened. He's still not convinced. Nobody at this point has seen the resurrected Lord. But here's what the angel said He's not dead, He's alive. He is risen. So these, these people are slowly making a transition, and they need help from God to make the transition from totally demoralized, totally defeated, all hope is gone, all hope is lost, to He's alive, He's risen. And that's significant because that's part of what's going to lead to what happens in the very first chapter of Acts chapter 1, that Jesus is alive. And so over the next 40 days, here comes Jesus appearing to the disciples. And at one time, he appeared to over 500 people at the same, at the, all at the same time. He makes these appearances over a long period of time in order to do what? Convince them that he's alive. Now, I find it kind of sad and interesting that it took 40 days to finally get them to convince, convince that he's alive. You would have thought the first time he showed up, they would have gone, hey, that's Jesus. He's alive. But it took 40 days of repetitive appearing to get all these people convinced, and I think to light a fire within them that would allow them to do the things they did, starting in Acts chapter 1. So He appears. And one of the stories I love is found also in the book of Luke where he records Jesus appearing to that couple that are walking along the road to Emmaus. Remember, they had left Jerusalem. They had watched the crucifixion. They were probably two of the ones standing there watching as Jesus died, as he was taken down, and then they left and they headed back home to Emmaus. And as they're walking along, Jesus appears to them. But Jesus somehow hides himself. They're not able to recognize who he is. Now he still has the nail prints in his hands and his feet. He's still got the scars in his head from the thorn of crown, the crown of thorns. He's got uh, the wound in his side, but somehow he's hidden from them. And he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And I love this story because they've been talking about all the things that had happened in Jerusalem. And they almost respond sarcastically like, where have you been? What rock did you just crawl out from under? Do you have no idea what just happened? Who are they asking that of? The guy who just went through it all. The guy who hung on the cross. The guy who died. The guy who gave up his life for them. And they tell him all the things that had happened. And at a point in time, Jesus opens their eyes and they're able to see who he is. And they run back. And they tell the disciples. So, they're the first to get a glimpse of the risen Lord. <coughs> and so they go back and they tell these guys, and just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. So they tell what happened, and here comes Jesus appearing suddenly, miraculously. And he says, Peace be with you, which is really kind of an understatement, right? Because they've just heard this news from these two people, and then suddenly, bam, Jesus is standing in the room alive, and he goes, Peace. Peace be with you. It's okay. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. So here, once again, Jesus shows up and they totally did not expect it. Instead of going, hey, it's Jesus, they go, it's a ghost. They still don't get it, they still don't believe it. And he says, why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me, make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And then he showed him his hands and his feet. He showed them the wounds. He showed them the marks of the crucifixion. But they're still wrestling with belief because it says they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. What a great mixture of emotions, right? Is it him? I don't know. But if it is, I'm happy. But if it's not, I'm not sure. What's wrong with us? What's going on? They don't know what to do with this. Then he asks, Do you have anything to eat? What a great, what a great question. You know? They're, they're astonished, they're scared out of their wits, they don't know what to think, and Jesus wants food. Do you got anything to eat? And so they gave him some fish, and then he ate it as they watched. Wouldn't you love to have been in that room? Here's Jesus feeding his face and these disciples are all like slack jawed, like watching him eat. I don't think anybody said a word. I think they just stared at, at Jesus as he lifts the fish to his face and they see the hole in his hand. What an incredible atmosphere. And yet you see still disbelief. Then he said, when I was with you before I told you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. The very thing he did to that couple on the road to Emmaus, you remember he took them through the Old Testament scriptures and he showed them everything in the Old Testament that spoke about him. He had done the same thing with the disciples earlier on before he died. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. Why am I reading this? Because this is Acts. This is the whole purpose in Acts. Is that Jesus had told them all these things, but it had just gone right over their head. So he's telling them again in his resurrected form that all authority is given to me, and that is going to take the gospel, the good news of my death, my burial, my resurrection to the nations. What they didn't know is, they were gonna be the tools to make that happen. That hadn't sunk in yet. And it's gonna begin in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. That's the message, that's the gospel, that's the hope. And he says, you are witnesses of all these things. Now, that word means that they are witnesses. They've seen these things. They've now seen the resurrected, the resurrected Jesus, but they're also going to be witnesses in the form of testifying to others about everything that they have seen from the day he came to the day he leaves. And then he tells them, once again, I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit, just the Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from on heaven. Now, here's what I want us to recognize. He's told them before, even before he died, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. Never in any case that I can find, did he ever really explain what that meant, what it was going to feel like. And and here's what I've been convicted about as I've read through this again and studied through it, is that sometimes I really don't know what to expect from the Holy Spirit. I can teach about him. I can talk about him. I believe he's there. I know he indwells me. I have a pretty good idea of what he does, but on a daily basis, I don't know really what to expect him to do. And sometimes I don't expect him to do anything. So, as Jesus had told them over and over again that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, here he is again in his resurrected form, and he says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. But he had told them, before I can send him, I got to go, I got to leave. And so we know that he does. So fast forward, the ascension. He takes them to Bethany. He lifts up his hands to heaven. He blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken back up to heaven. This is a very kind of a shrunken view of what happened. Some of the other gospels go into greater detail. And he says, so they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. Now, why were they going to the temple? Because they're Jews. They didn't know where else to go. They didn't have any churches. They didn't have any buildings. They didn't have any congregations. So as Jews, they went back to the temple and they did what they did as Jews. But they are joyful and they're praising God because of what Jesus has just told them. But he's left them. And he's told them to go back to Jerusalem. Now, this is part of the story that we're probably all familiar with, that they went back to Jerusalem, they went to that upper room, and they waited. But sometimes I think we don't understand the significance of what that meant. These people, the majority of which came from Galilee, which is up in the north, Jerusalem was not their home. It's not where they lived. They didn't have family there. It was not a Um, familial place for them. As a matter of fact, it was a very dangerous place for them because their Messiah had just been killed and crucified and they're the remnant that are left and the high priest, the Sanhedrin, even the Romans were probably still looking for those disciples. And where does Jesus say, go wait? Jerusalem. Where did they probably wanna go? Galilee. They probably didn't wanna go to Jerusalem, but they did because that's where Jesus told them to go. Go to Jerusalem. And that's where the book of Acts picks up the story. Luke ends with the ascension. And then Acts picks up with these men in Jerusalem. Men and women. 120 of them waiting. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. Mount of Olives is where Jesus left. And the scriptures tell us it's where he's coming back. So when he comes back to this earth, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives, same place. And it says, when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who are present, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, not Iscariot, he's dead. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women and the brothers of Jesus. We know of four brothers of Jesus that are mentioned in the Scripture. They're half-brothers, but they came to faith in Jesus sometime during his life, and they are there. He also had half-sisters. They're not mentioned, but I would guess that they're in the room as well. There's this mixed bag of 120 people, 11 of which were the original disciples, and the rest are all followers, all together waiting, waiting in that room. And it says they met together and were united in prayer. It does not tell us what they prayed about. But it doesn't take a genius to think about what they might have prayed about. If I had been there, I'd have been praying for protection because the high priest was out there. The Sanhedrin hated us. I would have been praying for protection. I would have been praying that we could get delivered. I would have been praying for whatever this Holy Spirit thing you're going to send, would you hurry up? Because I'm tired of waiting. I would have been impatient. I would have been in a hurry. I would have been waiting for something incredible to happen. But we don't know. They just prayed. And in that room is is this core group of individuals who are going to rock the world. They're going to change history. And sometimes I think what we do when we read these stories, and I'm, hey, the book of Acts is full of incredible stories. People get struck dead for lying, people get healed, people get raised from the dead. You have tongues of fire, people speaking in languages they don't know. You have all kinds of incredible things. And we get so hung up on those and we forget the fact that these all were taking place with people like you and me. People who brought nothing to the table that qualified them to do any of this, other than they were followers of Jesus Christ. So we got to keep that in mind as we move through this story. So they're in that room. What are they doing? Well, we know they're praying. We know they're still rejoicing, but I think there's a lot that goes unsaid in these verses. The waiting is probably the hardest, right? None of us like to wait. When I was a kid, I hated to wait for Christmas. As an adult, I couldn't wait for Christmas to be over (laughs) so that all my kids would go because I like empty nest. I I like being with just my wife and I, but they were waiting and they didn't like to wait. They were praying. Why? Because what else are they going to do? They're praying for strength. They're praying for hope, direction, guidance, protection, all kinds of things. I think they're speculating. I think they're talking amongst themselves. They didn't pray 24 hours a day, so there was time to talk. And when they had meals, they probably speculated over, what do you think this is going to be like when the Spirit comes? What's it going to feel like? And I think they argued. I think they doubted. <coughs> they questioned. They worried. They wondered. I, I, th- I think just because of what we know about Peter And James and John in particular, I think they were arguing about who's going to get the Spirit first and who's going to get more of the Spirit. Remember, James and John are the two that came up to Jesus and said, Hey, when you get on your throne, can we have the two two seats to your right and your left? We'll look at that in just a minute. These, These are normal, everyday guys, right? So there's all kinds of stuff going on. Here's what we do know just from looking at the passage they have no idea what's coming. They are operating in complete ignorance about what's about to take place. But here's what they did know. Jesus had told them, I'm going to send you another advocate. What the heck does that mean? I mean, that's great. But, you know, so here we are on the other side of the equation. and We got the rest of the story. That, that word really meant nothing to the disciples, I don't believe. I think he says, I'm going to send you an advocate. He says, that advocate's going to be the spirit of truth. Well, that's great but we're stuck in this upper room and we really don't know what's gonna happen. He says he's gonna guide you into all truth. Well, that's wonderful. How does that help me feed my family? How does that keep us safe? So all of these things that Jesus had told them, he's gonna speak through you. Well, I don't wanna speak. I don't feel called to speak. None of this was really that comforting because they didn't know what it meant. And then he says he's gonna be a source of power from on, on high. Okay. Now, here's, let's, let's, let's bring this close to home, guys. All of that that Jesus said to the disciples long before he died applies to you and me. If you're in Christ, all of that applies to you. He's your advocate. The Holy Spirit is your advocate. He's the spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. He will speak through you when necessary, and he is your source of power from on high. Here we are, way after the resurrection... And we're still wondering, what, what does that even mean? When's the last time you really felt power from on high? When is the last time you really felt the Holy Spirit speak through you in ways that you knew were not you? See, I think the disciples, just like you and me, were at that point in time wondering, what, is, what do I do with this? What, is this? what does this mean? And so the what question was the one that was pressing in on them. No clue. All kinds of speculation, all kinds of wondering because it was uncharted territory. They didn't know what was coming. And see, for for many of us in the room, we've been in Christ for years and we still don't know what's coming. We still don't know what God has in store. We're still kind of waiting for him to do something and this promise of the Spirit and power from on high is still out there like some nebulous thing that everybody else gets but I don't have. What does it mean? Well, here's what was happening. And I think it was a preconceived plan of God through Jesus Christ to get them to let go of everything they held near and dear. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we go through these 11 weeks. If you stick with us, you're going to have to let go of some preconceived notions, things that you think you know that you've been taught that you've been raised with that you heard in Sunday school when you were a kid or that you listened to on in some message from some pastor and their preconceived notions you have about the Holy spirit that you have about the church that you have about salvation and you're going to have to let go of them because these guys were going to get rocked. And what we got to keep in mind is that every one of those individuals, 120 of them in that room waiting for something to happen. were all Jews. And they all had these preconceived notions about what it meant and what was going to happen. We know that they expected something great to happen because they were all God's chosen people, right? We are Jews. We're God's chosen people. Jesus was a Jew. And something great's going to happen because we're Jews. And they're going to get that view rocked in a very short period of time. They had Jewish concepts of the kingdom of God. What was their concept of the kingdom of God? It was kingdom on earth, Jewish kingdom on earth. And he's gonna change that. It was gonna get rocked in a big way. And he's trying to get them to let go of what you think you know, even after three years of spending time with him. So again, back to the ascension. They ask him this question right before he ascends back up into heaven. And this gives you some insight into how the disciples think. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He's getting ready to go back up to heaven and all they can think about is their kingdom on earth. Is it time for you to restore, to free Israel and restore the kingdom? What are they looking for? Earthly kingdom, thrones, power, get rid of Rome. And Jesus responds to them in a very stark way because he understands that you've got the wrong idea of the kingdom. And here's what I think is going through their little pea brains Because it would have been going through my little pea brain had I been in the upper room at the Last Supper. Because here's what Jesus said to him. You have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is back at the Last Supper before his death. And he's telling them, hey guys, you're going to sit in my kingdom and you're going to rule and you're going to sit on thrones. What did they hear? You're going to sit in my kingdom, and you're going to rule from 12 thrones. Power, position, prominence, popularity, authority on this earth. That's what they heard. What was Jesus saying? Later. Long time from now. But they didn't get that. Because they think like men. They think earthly. So they're thinking he's going to free Israel And they were looking for an earthly kingdom set up on this earth. He was going to be the next David. They were going to rule along with him, and they were going to have power. And they were going to be restored to the military might that Israel used to have during the days of David and Solomon. But Jesus has something radically different in mind. And and, and again, let's bring it fast forward. Jesus did not die for you to have your best life now. I, I hate to break that news to you. He did not die so that you could be happy and content with all that you own and possess, so that you could have a great job, so that you could make lots of money, so that you could take wonderful vacations. He did not die to establish his kingdom on earth in a physical form or your kingdom on earth. And what are these guys hung up on? I want my kingdom. And he's trying to get them to understand it's different than what you think. And he tells them the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know, but you will receive power for when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He brings them back to reality. (coughs) Excuse me. It's about power. It's about God. It's about the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense. And it's about you doing the things God has called you to do as his ambassadors. He says, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, again, get in their sandals. They're Jews. And he just told them, you're going to be my witnesses, okay, in Jerusalem. All right, I don't really like Jerusalem, but I'll do it. In Judea. Okay, that's closer. That at least includes Galilee and Samaria. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Samaria, they're unclean. They're dogs. We don't even, we don't have anything to do with them. Into all the nations. Oh, wait a minute. That's the Gentiles. They're not part of the family of God. You're our Messiah. See, this is a paradigm shift for these guys because he says the earth, all the earth, they're stuck on this really kind of, simple and simplistic plain. And Jesus is telling him the kingdom came and it's, an, it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom and it's not of this earth. And here's what's interesting. When Jesus stood before Pilate, here's what he told him. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. See, guys, Jesus Christ again did not die to set up a theocracy on this planet. The United States is not a Christian nation. I don't think the United States has ever been a Christian nation. And I know you can argue with me about how we were founded and all of that, but most of those men were deists. But put that aside, we're not a Christian nation, guys. And I don't think we ever will be a Christian nation because Jesus Christ didn't come to make the United States a Christian nation. He came to establish his kingdom, but it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And it has citizens from all around the world made up of all kinds of people, many of whom look nothing like you and I. And what he's telling these disciples is you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to make this happen. You're going to build my kingdom. You're going to tell people. And this was a huge shift in thinking for these disciples. See, Jesus didn't come to just restore Israel. He's going to restore Israel, but that's way out in the future, guys. He came to do something even far more significant, far more important in the grand scheme of things. And I think sometimes you and I lose the importance of God's grand scheme and we get sucked into our little myopic world of what's best for me. Here's a question to think about. What if none of the disciples had bought into this? What if they had said, I don't want to do that. I don't like Samaritans. I don't like to travel. I don't like to speak. I got a job to do. I prefer fishing. Well, here's what I know. God's sovereign. God's going to accomplish his will regardless of them. But I'm glad they participated. I'm glad they willingly got involved because it's what brought salvation to the world. And it's the reason I'm in Christ today because somebody did their job. Somebody answered the calling. I love this from Isaiah 49, and it's a messianic passage. Listen what it says. Now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be a servant who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me, and my God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a messianic prophetic passage that the Jewish leadership, religious leadership, (coughs) would have known well, but they never recognized what it said. Because what does it say? That Jesus was not only going to one day restore the people of Israel, he was going to be a light to who? The Gentiles. And he's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But how did Jesus choose to do it? Through men like you and me. Every day, normal, average people. And these two things, restore the people of Israel, that's, that's, that's the one thing the, the uh, disciples wanted. When are you going to restore Israel? Is it now? And Jesus said, no, right now I'm going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Because that's more important. That's what's really critical. Bring salvation. So here they are waiting in the room. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's who's in the room. This is just a microcosm of who's in that room of the 120. Peter, he's an impulsive fisherman with a huge mouth. Always spoke before he thought. There's Andrew, Peter's less impulsive brother and fishing partner. We don't know a lot about Andrew. There's James, another fisherman, who's ambitious, hot-headed, and very judgmental. There's John. He is also ambitious, competitive, and power hungry. There's Philip, a nondescript fisherman with no significant character traits. We know nothing about this guy, but he's in that room. There's Matthew. He's a publican and a tax collector. He's not only hated by Gentiles, he's hated by Jews. He's in that room. And then there's a hodgepodge of the rest. And if you go and look at that glossary I put together, most of the disciples we know nothing about, we don't even know what they did for a living. And yet that's who God's going to use. Those are the men. They're nobodies. They bring nothing to the table. No outstanding qualities, no outstanding credentials, and they are not extraordinary men. And yet God's going to call them, and God's going to use them, and God's going to change the world through them. Which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1. Few of you are wise in the world's eyes, powerful, wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. This is a great description of the men in that room. This is a great description of the men in this room that may offend you, but I didn't say it. God did. But see, that should be comforting to you because God wants to use you. So just to wrap it up this morning, there's three things I want you to walk away with. Three essential things we see in this passage. First is patience. Patience. He says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power. Wait for the promise of the father. See, they had to stay where they were. They stayed in a very dangerous place in the very city where their Messiah had been killed. And the the circumstances were not great. Can you imagine 120 people crammed into an upper room of a home waiting? And they knew that there were forces aligned against them and they all wanted to go home. But they had to wait see, Jesus said, stay and wait. Some of us are still having to stay and wait to see what God's going to do, but we're prone to rush ahead and not wait. But you got to have patience when you do the things of God. Secondly, they had to be pliable. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Go and make disciples of all the nations. See, those things, you don't need to know all the details. All you need to know is you're going to go make disciples of all the nations, which most of which were Gentile, which to them was unclean. They were going to have to change their way of thinking. It's not what you think. You're going to go to the whole creation, not just to Jews. You've got to be flexible. God is going to ask you and I to do things we don't want to do, or we may say, that doesn't make sense. Too bad. Be flexible. Be obedient. They, you got to be willing to accept God's agenda over your own if you're going to be used by him. And everything these men knew was going to run counter to what they believed as Jews. Finally, power. This is a no-brainer, right? They needed power. And he said, you're going to receive power and you're going to stay in the city until you're clothed with power. You gotta have power, not your power, but God's power. And Jesus said, I have all authority and my authority is gonna be used to give you this power so that you can do all the things I've called you to do. And he says, you will do greater things than I ever did. Every time I read that verse, I go, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's like hyperbole. You don't really mean that. Yes, he did mean that. And when you go read the story of the book of Acts, the stories in the book of Acts, these men and women did things greater than Jesus did in quantity. They went places he never could have gone. They reached people he never would have reached. And the same thing is true today. God wants to do great things through you and me. But you got to realize you'll never do it by yourself. You'll never do it in your own strength. You can't manufacture the kind of power you need. And most of us are living on fumes that we've manufactured and that's why we have no power. That's why we have no strength in our lives. So they're gonna learn over time to become totally dependent upon God. So here's your questions guys for this morning. This is where you get to make it personal. So of those three qualities, patience, pliability and power, which is the one you struggle with the most? Please be honest. The truth is we struggle with all three, right? I definitely struggle with power, but I'm a very impatient person. Which one do you struggle with the most? And pray for one another that whatever that one is, that God would do something significant in your life for the next 11 weeks. Secondly, the disciples had no idea what to expect. When the Holy Spirit showed up, do you feel the same way? I really don't know what to expect of the Holy Spirit. I've never really felt the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it means to really be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just share it. What does that look like in your own life? And then finally, too many times we disqualify ourselves from being used by God in extraordinary ways. Why do you think that is? And in what ways do you feel under or unqualified? See, guys, you are a far from extraordinary man, regardless of all the things you've accomplished in life. From a godly perspective, from a spiritual perspective, you bring nothing to the equation, but that's exactly where you need to be because God wants to use you. But do not disqualify yourself. So, those are your three questions. And as always, if you get through one, great. If you get through three, wonderful. If you don't do any of the three, just make sure you don't talk about sports. Okay? Talk about the topic. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for the willingness to come and listen. I pray that you would take this series and you would bring it alive into every one of our lives. Father, continue to convict me and change me and mold me into the man you want me to be. Thank you that I am far from extraordinary. And yet, because of your Holy Spirit, I can do extraordinary things that I can't take credit for. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for these men. Bless their day. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.